Amen. All right, saints, if you would open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 9. Zechariah, chapter 9. If you don't know where Zechariah is, go to Matthew, back up two books, you'll find it. Come to chapter 9. Now, what I want to do is I want to just begin by reading the first eight verses as this deals, Zechariah deals with the judgments of the nations that are around Israel. Now keep in mind that as we've talked about this before, that when we're looking at these last six chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11 deal with the first coming of the Messiah and how Israel rejects him. As we get into chapters next week, 12, 13, and 14, the second coming of the Messiah, and of course, Israel accepts him. And so we're looking at this first coming of the Messiah, and what we note is this. It begins in verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 9, the burden of the word of the Lord, against the land of Hadrach and Damascus its resting place. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, also against Hamath, which borders it, and against Tyre and Sion, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like dust, and gold like mires of the street. Behold, the Lord will cast her out, and he will destroy her, Power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful in Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will take away the blood from his mouth. And the abomination from between his teeth. But he remains, even he shall be for our God. For he shall be like a leader in Judah. And Ekron like a Jebusite. I will camp around my house because of the army. Because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen it with my eyes. The burden of the Lord comes to Zechariah. And he looks to basically the land to the north and the land to the west. So when you see the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach, Hadrach, and, and scholars are, are, because of the ancient city and the location of it, they're mixed emotions, whether it is a remote city that is there in Syria or it is a city in the southern part of Assyria. Now, Assyria, of course, you know, is northern. As you come on down, you have Lebanon and Syria. And so they're... they're trying to figure out exactly where this, they really don't know. Um, and in all honesty, whether it's the southern part of Syria or it's the, the land over there or the southern part of Assyria or the land, one of the cities of Syria, it makes sense that it would be one of the cities of Syria because it says the land of Hadrach and Damascus 
its resting place. Damascus, of course, being the capital of Syria. For the eyes of men and the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. And against Hamath, which borders it, then that is Syria. And then against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. And of course, then you move from the eastern side of the northern part of Israel to the western side where you have Tyre and Sidon there in Lebanon. And so you're dealing with these nations. You're dealing with these cities. And it says of Tyre, Tyre built herself a tower. And of course, we know that Tyre became strong. Tyre itself had an amazing way of surviving. When Assyria came down and took over the northern tribes, Assyria tried to conquer Tyre and spent five years trying to conquer Tyre and utterly failed. And then as Babylon conquered Assyria... Nebuchadnezzar would come down and he would try to conquer Tyre and he would spend 13 years trying to conquer Tyre and he would utterly fail. But it wasn't until Alexander the Great. And what we see is this, as we come into this area dealing with the word of the Lord, keep in mind that it deals with the first coming of the Messiah. And one of the things that needed to take place before Jesus came on the scene was there had to be, uh, in a sense, a uniting of the nations. Now, there was Assyria had taken over the northern part, but Assyria really hadn't conquered the, the world in full. Babylon conquered most of it, but not all of it. But it wasn't until Alexander the Great, the Grecians came. And so we see that there as the, the Persians then, you know, Medo-Persians took on Babylon and then the Greeks with Alexander came and they conquered the known world. And Alexander did it quickly. Uniquely when Alexander came to Tyre, that Tyre kind of defended themselves for a few months and then they sort of went off, they went offshore to a little island and there they camped out, and there they said, you can't touch us. Because they've done this before. They did it with Assyria. They did it with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Well, Alexander was a little bit peeved with this whole thing. They were sitting on their island, you know, doing the nana, 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 you can't get me. And what Alexander did is he took the ruins of the city that was there on the shoreline and began to make a causeway, a causeway across the water over to this little island. And it took him approximately seven months to wipe out Tyre. And after Alexander came and he wiped out Tyre, he then moved down where verse 5 says, Ashkelon shall see it in fear, Gaza also shall be sorrowful. Ekron, he dried up the expectation, the king from Gaza and Ashkelon shall perish, a mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, the major Philistine cities. And so Alexander the Great came and then he, after he took over Tyre, and, of course, he took over Damascus first, went over to Tyre, came down to the Philistines. Then he moved over to Jerusalem. And there, as he moved over to Jerusalem, 
that basically, you know, Tyre thought it was unconquerable, and, and that was true for the point. But when he moved to Jerusalem, there was a high priest by the name of Jadua. Now, I gave you guys a handout for tonight, and the handout is this. It is a portion of the book of Josephus. Now, in the 11th book, in the 8th chapter, and I'm going to be reading four or four from the the sections four and five, but I want to share with you that when Alexander the Great was coming in to conquer Israel, something unique began to happen. That as he came to that point, the high priest had a vision. And rather than locking themselves up, what they did was this. The high priest had a vision to say, you know what, we need to just deck out Jerusalem. Just make it beautiful like we're going to have a party. And what we need to do is we need to open the doors. We need to dress everyone in white and go out and meet Alexander. That's what God was telling us to do. And that's what the high priest passed the word on. And how do you did that? And as he did so, what we're going to read here in the account of Josephus uniquely was this, that when Josephus was in Macedonia, in Dios, he had this vision of God telling him, I want you to go and I'm going to allow you to conquer conquer the Medo-Persians, but first you're going to be introduced to me through this high priest in his garb and the people who are all dressed in white into the city. And so when he comes to conquer Jerusalem, they just open their doors and they celebrate him. And he's like, oh my goodness, this is the vision that I had while I was in Macedonia. And while he comes into the city, what happens is this. They read to him, to Alexander, portions of the book of Daniel, which actually state that there's going to be one man, a Grecian man, who's going to come and conquer the entire world. And Alexander says, dude, that sounds a lot like me. And amazingly, he then makes this wonderful treaty with Jerusalem that every seventh year they're going to be exalted from taxes so they can just worship God. That they're going to, you know, he's going to use part of the, the Jerusalem when he gets to Macedonia, he gets to Babylon. And he says, listen, if you guys want to, You know, because you're Jewish, you don't have to pay the taxes no matter where you are in the world. It was an amazing thing that he did. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little bit in advance, and I'll tell you where your portion locks in. And so I'm going to start reading in the very first part of this book 11, the chapter 8, the first part. And I'm going to start reading Josephus' account where he meets up, where Sanballat meets up with Alexander up in Tyre. It says this, but Sanballat thought he had now gotten a proper opportunity to make an attempt, so he renounced Darius. 
Sanballat, the same one that had written to Darius saying, hey, you know what, the Jews are just crazy, they're going to be uprisers. So he said, okay, Sanballat, you go ahead, you stop them by force. And so Sanballat now thinking, maybe I can have a different king than Darius. So taking with him 7,000 of his own subjects. Understand, that's how they stopped the, the building in Jerusalem, with 7,000. That's just who Sanballat has. So with 7,000 of his own subjects, he came to Alexander and finding him beginning the siege of Tyre, he said to him that he delivered up to him these men who came out of places under his dominion and did gladly accept him for their Lord instead of Darius. I want you as my king. So Alexander had received him kindly. Sanballat thereupon took courage and spoke to him about his present affair. And he told him that he had a son-in-law, Manasseh, who was the brother of the high priest, Jadua. And there were many others of his own nation now with him. And they were desirous to have a temple in the places subject to him. That it would be for the king's advantage to have the strength of the Jews divided into two parts. Lest when the nation is of one mind and united upon any attempt for innovation, they proved troublesome to kings that had formerly proved to the king of Assyria. Whereupon Alexander gave Sambalat leave to do so, who used the utmost diligent and built the temple and made Manasseh the priest and demanded it a great reward that his daughter's children should have that dignity. But when the seven months of the siege of Tyre were over and the two months of the siege of Gaza, Sanballat died. Now understand what happened. Tyre is there attacking Tyre, or Alexander is attacking Tyre. After that seven months, he comes down, he takes those cities that we just you know, talked about of the Philistines, and he conquers those in about two months. And now this is where your handout begins. It says this, Now Alexander, when he had taken Gaza, made haste to go up to Jerusalem. And Jadua, the high priest, when he heard that, was in agony and under terror as not knowing how he should meet the Macedonians since the king was displeased at his foregoing disobedience. In other words, Israel was not paying the, the, the dues that were for him. He was going to come down and teach them a lesson. And so he therefore ordained that the people should make supplications and he should join with him an offering of sacrifices to God, whom he sought to protect that nation and to deliver them from the perils that were coming upon him, where God warned him in a dream which came upon him after he had offered sacrifices that he should take courage and adorn the city, make it beautiful, and open the gates and that the rest should appear in white garments and that he and the priest should meet the king and the inhabitants proper to their order without the dread of any ill consequences which the province of God would prevent upon which when he arose from his sleep, he greatly rejoiced and declared to all the warning he had received from God according to which dream he acted entirely and so waited for the coming of the king. And when he understood that he was not far from the city, he went out in procession. With all the priests and the multitude of citizens, the procession was venerable and the manner of it different from 
that of all the other nations. So in other words, when he was coming to conquer the nations, they never dressed in white robes and went out and greeted him. They locked their doors. They said, you can't come in. And so we see here just an amazing a point of, of what's going on here. So it was different than all the other nations. It reached to a place called Sapphah, which name is translated into the Greek, which signifies prospect. For you have thence a prospect both of Jerusalem and of the temple. And when the Phoenicians and the Chaldeans that followed him thought that they should have liberty to plunder the city, so those that were there said, hey, you're, you're going to give us Jerusalem, right? So they thought that they could go and plunder the city. What we see is this. And torment the high priest to death, which the king's displeasure fairly promised them. The very reverse of it happened for Alexander when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments. And while the priest stood clothed with fine linen, the high priest in the purple and the scarlet clothing with, its, with his mitre on his head and having the golden plate whereupon the name of God was engraved, he approached by himself and adored that name. The first saluted the high priest. So in other words, Alexander salutes the high priest. And the Jews also did all together with one voice salute Alexander and encompass him about, whereupon the kings of Syria and the rest were surprised at what Alexander had done and supposed him disordered in his mind. So they thought him crazy. And then, however, Parmenio also went up to him and asked him how it came to pass that when all the others adored him that he should adore the high priest of the Jews. Whom he replied, I do not adore him. I don't adore the high priest, but the God whom hath honored him with his high priesthood. So I don't, I'm not adoring the high priest, but the God who put the high priest in his position. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit, in the very clothes that he was in, when I was at Dios of Man, in Macedonia, who, when I was considering with myself how I, might, how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, exhorted me to make no delay, but to boldly pass over the sea thither, that he would conduct my army and would give me the dominion over the Persians, whence it is that having seen no other habit, and now seeing this person in it and remembering that vision and the exhortation which I had in my dream, I believe that I bring this army under the divine conduct and that shall therewith conquer Darius and destroy all the Persians and that all the things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. And when he had said this to Parmenio, and had given the high priest his right hand, the priest ran along by him and came into the city. And when he went into the temple, he offered sacrifices to God according to the high priest's direction and magnificently treated both the high priest and the priests. And when the book of Daniel was showed to him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks would destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended, and that he was glad, and he dismissed the multitude for the present. But the next day called out to him, and he bade them ask that favors they pleased of him, 
whereupon the high priest desired that they might enjoy the laws of their forefathers. In other words, can we walk in what the scriptures call us to do and might pay no tribute on the seventh year? And he granted all they desired. And when they entreated him that they would permit the Jews in Babylon in media to enjoy their own laws also, he willingly promised to do hereafter what they desired. And when he said to the multitude that if any of them would enlist themselves in his army on this condition, that they would continue under the laws of their forefathers and live according to them, he was willing to take them with him. Many were ready to accompany him in his wars. Isn't that incredible? How all these other nations had sought to prevent Alexander from coming in and the Jews just open it up. And we see what happens here. In the beginning of Zechariah chapter 9, what initially happens is that Alexander goes against Damascus, he goes against Tyre, he goes against Sidon, and then he goes against the cities of the Philistines. And then verse 8 makes this statement. And I will camp around my house because of the army. Now, God says this, I will camp around my house. I'll be in that city. Because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns, no more shall an oppressor pass through them. For now I have seen with my eyes. God says, I'm watching this army. And they're not going to come in. They're not going to take you out. What they're going to do is this. They're going to pass on by. And of course, God had given to the high priest, this incredible vision of what to do, which matched the dream that Alexander had. I want to read to you a portion of Psalm 34. You know it well, but what I want to do is this. I, I want to take this Psalm of David. I want to read to you the first eight verses, and it says this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord the humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. Now, note verse four again. I sought the Lord and he heard me. And he delivered me from all my fears. Sounds like the high priest Jedua. I was panicked. I was terrified. Here comes, you know, Alexander and the army along with all of the, the people that Sam Ballot had supplied him, another 7,000, a little bit nervous as they were coming up. And yet, I love the Lord because he said, I sought the Lord, he heard me, and he delivered me from all my fears. So the high priest could tell everyone in Jerusalem, you don't have to worry about it. We're fine. We're good. We're, we're absolutely going to be blessed. Make no mistake about it. He's going to be in charge of the world, and we're going to have to pay a tribute, but on the seventh year, it is not going to happen. And everything that we ask, we're going to have what we ask. And I find it interesting that as he goes through, we see this. He delivered me from all my fears, so the high priest was delivered from his fears. He told the nation of Israel, and as they walked the vision, guess what? They had no fear, and God delivered them. And so we see in verse 5, and they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of, his, out of all his troubles. And the angel of the Lord, verse 7, 
encamps around all those who fear him and delivers them. This is God. I'm camping around Jerusalem. I'm here. Now remember when the Babylonians took Jerusalem, where was God? Remember Ezekiel? God's glory left the temple, left Jerusalem. It was gone. Eventually, God's glory comes back, and at this point, God is there encamped around Jerusalem. They don't have to fear anything because the angel Lord encamps around all those who fear him. If you are reverencing God, adoring him, fearing him, the angel Lord encamps about, he delivers. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And this is what we see. Because in verse 8 of Zechariah 9, I will camp around my house. This is God. He's going to camp around his house and he says, because of the army. I'm here. I'm protecting. And, And make no mistake that he had already given to Alexander just about a year previous a dream, a vision while he was still in Macedonia before he even got down to Tyre and and attacked them for seven months and the Philistines for another two months. This is what God was doing. And so Tyre itself, God makes this statement back in chapter 9, verse 4, Behold, the Lord will cast her out and he will destroy her power in the sea and she will be devoured by fire. So, Alexander would go out to the island, conquer Tyre, burn down that area. So nothing was left of it. And then he goes down to the Philistines, and of course, he deals with them because of their idolatry. Take a look at verse 7. He said, I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth as they eat the blood of meat sacrificed to idols. As they begin to do this, God says, I'm going to deal with you. And what I'm going to do is is where he says at the middle of verse 7, but he remains, even he shall be for our God, and he shall be like the leader in Judah and Ekron, like a Jebusite. Now, what does he mean, like Ekron, like a Jebusite? He was saying this, that the Philistines would be given over to, and they would be like the Jebusites. If you remember that passage in 2 Samuel chapter 5, I want to read verses 6 through 9, because the Jebusites used to be the inhabitants of Jerusalem. As David came to conquer, it makes this statement in 2 Samuel 5, 6, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites and the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David saying, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And so we know, according to Second Chronicles 11, that Joab was the one who went up and, and conquered, opened the gates, let in Israel, and then they conquered the city, became the capital of David. And so we see that in the same way as the Jebusites that were there kind of were taken in and became a part of Israel. 
so the remnants of those of Ekron would come and they would become part of Israel too. They'd be a, like a mixed multitude. And then, of course, that beautiful passage in verse 8, God says, I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. In other words, Alexander's not going to come in. He's going to pass by. He's going to come back. As he passes by, he takes out Egypt. Then he comes on back. No, no more shall an oppressor pass through them for now I have seen with my eyes. God says, I'm here, I'm watching over you. Verse 9. We see this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now at this point, keep in mind that when they went out to greet Alexander... Alexander did not come on a donkey. Alexander was there riding a horse. So this isn't Alexander, but we do understand that this is that fulfillment of the prophecy that was there spoken of by Matthew in Matthew chapter 21. I want to read the first five verses here so that you can just take a, uh, an idea of just what it is that is happening. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of him. And immediately he will send them all this was done that it might fulfill that which was spoken by the prophet saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and riding and sitting on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. So the fulfillment is Jesus Christ. We know that. So after he talks about Alexander coming by and leaving, it sets the path for Messiah to come. The world all speaks one language. Rome comes and he makes the road so that the travel is there. Now Jesus comes on the scene. So it is after Alexander conquers the known world that the Messiah will come. Now we know it's Alexander, then Rome, and then Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And what happens is this. He says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. At this point, we see that now, after Jesus comes in verse 9, Matthew only quotes verse 9 of Zechariah 9, but he doesn't quote verse 10. Why? Because verse 10 is dealing with his second coming. In the second coming of Jesus Christ, there's peace. He says, there is no more battle anymore. That's why he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. They're no longer going to have to try to protect themselves and in a sense, what happens is that fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's God who's going to protect. 
And so we see in the middle of verse 10, he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So we see that here in the millennium that Jesus is saying, I'm going to rule all of the nations. I'm going to be the one. There are going to be no more wars. And for a thousand years, there will be no wars. And now verse 11, as he continues to speak here, to the nation of Israel. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. In other words, I'm going to free you. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. So he's talking about the Jews that are prisoners, those that are outside of Jerusalem. He says, I want you to come back to Jerusalem. I want you to come back to me. And this is always God's heart. Come back to me. Now, as Christians, isn't that what we declare to the lost? God is saying, listen, you're separated from me. Come back to me. Come and be a part of me. Come into my heart. Come into, let me come into your life. Come back to me. And so he says, return to the stronghold in verse 12. Come to the place of power. Come to the place of protection, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. I'm going to bless you for I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. And now we see the next event in the preparation of the Messiah. Now we know what happened with the downfall of Greece. That one of the sons of Greece, remember verse 13, I bent, my, I bent Judah my bow. So we begin to see that there in the tribe of Judah, that what was going to happen is this. Judah is going to be the authority, the ruling authority there in Israel. And I fitted the bow with Ephraim. So we talked about the the southern nation, the northern part of the nation. So they're going to unite Israel, southern and northern. And he's going to raise up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. There are going to be descendants of Israel that are going to be dealing with the sons of Greece. Now, the son of Greece that he's talking about is Antiochus Epiphanes. As we see, Greece begins to take over the world. Alexander dies, his generals take over, and eventually, through that, one of them take the the, the lead, and Antiochus Epiphany comes in, and what does he do? He does what is known as the abomination of desolation spoken of there in Daniel chapter 8. Now as he comes in, we see that there are sons of Zion, and we know them as the Maccabeans. And so one of the priests, and and, and so incredible, um, Mattathias, he has a son, it's his third son, and his name is Judas, Judas of Maccabee. So Judas, the Maccabean, begins a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, and through that, Israel, in a sense, 
drives out Antiochus. They get punished for it, but there's this incredible rebellion that happens. And this is where we understand that as they clear out the temple, purify the temple, that part of the revolt works. Then eventually what happens is this, is they don't have enough oil. And of course, that's you know, where Hanukkah, where God supplies miraculously, the lamps continue to burn until they're able to purify the next oil. So we understand here that what happens in verse 13 is Antiochus Epiphanes and the revolt of Judas Maccabean. So as we see this, he says, okay, Judah is going to once again have victory over Greece in this area, dealing with Antiochus as he comes up. And he says, I made you like the sword of a mighty man. And I believe that that's a reference directly to Judas Maccabee. Now verse 14, then the Lord will be seen over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and will go with whirlwinds from the south and the Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. In other words, they are going to be outmatched with weapons, but it means nothing. In other words, like David and Goliath, all it is is a sling and a stone. There's going to be victor victory from that. So don't worry about what weapons you have. It says in verse 15, the Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue them with sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if with wine, and they shall be filled with blood like basins and like the corners of the altar, and the Lord their God will save them in that day as a flock of his people, and they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like the banner over his head, and how great is its goodness, and how great is its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, and the new wine the young women." So we begin to see that God says, through this, there's going to be a cleansing of the temple. I'm going to do a work. Just trust in me. And although you're outmatched, I'm going to be the one to help you fight. And so that's the beginning now where we begin to see this is where the world is being set up for the coming of the Messiah. And now he asks Israel here in chapter 10, ask the Lord for rain. Now, why is he doing this? He says, well, ask the Lord for rain. In the time of the latter rain, the Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies. They tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herds, for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah. So at this point, we see that, that God is trying to speak to the nation Israel, saying, listen, don't seek idols. Don't go after anything that isn't God. Don't go after a substitute. Don't go after something that is close to God, but not really God. He says, come to me. And I love the heart because so often the world does what? The world is seeking everything else to try to give them some peace. Everything else to try to give them some comfort. And God says, listen, if you want true peace, 
If you want true comfort, if you want true life, you're only going to find it in one place. Come to me. And we know as Christians, the only place that is truly joy and peace and comfort, as God says here, he says, don't go to idols. Don't go to anything else that's not me. Ask me for the blessings. Ask me for the rain. And he says this, you ask me for the rain? In the time of the latter rain, the Lord will make flashing clouds and he will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. Do you understand? God says, I'm going to bless everyone. But you got to come to me instead. Don't, don't go to your own minds. Don't go to idols. And I love the heart because he says in verse 2, For the idols speak delusions. The diviner envisions lies. They tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. They realize that every time we go to somewhere outside of God, outside of his word, there really isn't any hope. There really isn't any peace. Now they say hope, hope. They say peace, peace. But it's only words. There's no true inner peace that comes through that working of the Spirit. But then he says this in the middle of verse 2. Therefore the people wend their way like sheep. The people are being led. And it says this, they are in trouble because there's no shepherd. They're wandering. They're trying to figure out where to go. And there really is no shepherd. Now, what he's saying is this. There's no good shepherd. Because he says this in verse 3. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herds, for the Lord will visit his flock. So we see when he says there's no shepherds, he's really saying there's no good shepherds. There aren't any shepherds because what was happening in that time is these shepherds were fleecing the flock. It says this about these false shepherds in Ezekiel 34. I want to start reading in verse 3. So you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. In other words, you gain, you gain, you gain, you get, you get, you get, but you give nothing to them. Verse 4, the weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back that which was driven away, nor sought that which was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. Verse 6, my sheep wandered throughout, through all the mountains on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. He's saying, you guys, my, my sheep, my flock is not yours, it's mine. They're scattered. Verse 7, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because of my flock, because my flock became a prey, and my flock became food for every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherd search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand, and I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day that he is he's among his scattered sheep. So I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. In verse 13, I will bring them out from all the peoples and gather them from all the countries and I will bring them to their own land and I will feed them on the mountain. 
the mountain of Israel and the valleys and all the inhabited places of the country. Verse 14, I will feed them with good, ple- with good pasture and their fold shall be in the high mountains of Israel and they shall lie down in a good field and feed in rich pasture on the mountain of Israel. Verse 15, I will feed my flock. I will make them lie down, says the Lord. I will seek what was lost and bring them back that was driven away and bind up the broken and strengthen that which was sick. And I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. God makes this statement. He says, listen, I called you. I wanted you. But, but basically what I found out here is there were no true shepherds. And so he makes this statement, and I love the heart of it, because in verse 3 of Zechariah 10, my anger is kindled against the shepherds, the false ones. I will punish the goat herds, for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, and it's his flock the house of Judah, and I will make them as a royal horse in battle. From him comes the cornerstone. In other words, from Judah. So we see that Judah is going to be the ruler. From him comes the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. From him every ruler together. In other words, God's rulers are going to come from Judah. And of course, that eventually points to Jesus Christ. And they shall be like mighty men, verse 5, who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle, and they shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. This is what God says, and he's going to do an amazing work in Israel. Now notice what he says in verse 6 and 7. He's going to talk about that I'm going to bring, when I come and you ask of me, and you begin to seek my heart, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to bless. But what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to unite Israel as one heart again. I'm not going to allow them to be divided. Take a look at verse 6. He said, I will strengthen in the house of Judah, southern, and I will save the house of Joseph, southern, and I will bring them back. So he says, those that were there taken by Babylon, I'm going to bring them back because I've had mercy on them. And they shall be as though I had not cast them aside. 70 years are going to come back. And it's going to be as if you've never sinned. For I am the Lord their God and I will hear them. Those of Ephraim, the northern tribes, shall be like a mighty man. And their hearts shall rejoice as if with wine, yes, their children shall see it and be glad, and their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord, and I will whistle for them and gather them, for I will redeem them, and they shall increase as they once increased. It's incredible how God says, I'm going to bring them back. No matter where they've been scattered, I'm going to bring them back. And now verse 9, I will sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. That wherever they have been scattered, God said, I am going to bring you back. They shall live together with their children and they shall return. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. This is amazing what God says he's going to do. With Israel, I'm going to bring them back from wherever they are, and I'm going to have them fill the land so there's not going to be enough room for them in the land. 
And now he says in verse 11 and 12, And he shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. The depths of the rivers shall dry up and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down. The scepter of Egypt shall depart. So I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. So he's going to deal with the countries. He's going to bless Israel. And as God has the heart to bless Israel... What we find is this, that Israel doesn't have the heart to come and see God. God says, I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to bless you. It's going to be just as if you've never sinned. And, and, and Israel's like, I still don't want you. I don't want your grace. I don't want your goodness. So notice what happens in chapter 11. He says, open your doors, O Lebanon that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O cypress, for the cedar is fallen, because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. There is a sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins, and there is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of the Jordan is in ruins. So we begin to see that what God does is this. All of these areas that were known for their thick, thick forests, for the building and supplying of everything they would need to build, God says, I'm going to just tear down all your forests. You'll have nothing. And on top of that, there's going to be the wailing of these shepherds because what they wanted for themselves is now destroyed in ruins. The pride of the Jordan, that which is the fertile lands, is also in ruins. God says, i got to deal with you. Thus says the Lord, my God, feed the flock for slaughter. He tells Israel that what I'm going to do, if there's any blessings that you receive... The blessings are for someone else. That's a scary thing with, with, a, with a Christian in God. That you see and receive God's blessing and you receive his blessings and you receive his blessings. And then you don't seek him. You don't worship him. You don't honor him. You don't recognize you are the blesser. And he says this, that all the blessings that I've given to you, all the things that I fattened you up with, the feeding of the flock for slaughter. Everything that I've blessed you with is going to be someone else's. So keep in mind that when a Christian is in sin, and they're saying, but God is blessing me. God is blessing me. But I, I can't. God's okay with my sin. Oh, no, he's not. He's already told you in his word he's not. But eventually what he's going to do is he's going to take everything that you had. It's going to be for someone else. Look at verse um, four, and look at verse seven, and then I'll read it in context again. Verse four says, thus says the Lord, feed the flock for the slaughter. Verse seven, so I fed the flock for slaughter. In particular, the poor of the flock, I took my two staves, the one I call beauty and the one I call bonds, and I fed the flock. So we see here that God says, I'm feeding you, I'm blessing you, but it's going to be for others. So verse 4, once again, thus says the Lord, my God, feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich and their shepherds do not pity them. Now notice when a person who owns cattle sells the cattle, for the most part, they're like, you know what, I, I've sold you for beef. I'm making money. 
And that's what you were there for. You were there for slaughter. And the same with here, the, the, the sheep. When you sell them for slaughter, you're like, God is good. I'm being blessed. I made money off these sheep. But they were sheep that were only to benefit me. And now they are there to be slaughtered. And I don't pity them. I'm not crying because the sheep are going for the slaughter. That's what they're designed to do. And so we see in verse 5, whose owners slaughter them, feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. And their shepherds do not pity them. They're not pitying them as they go to the slaughter. Then God says, for I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. I'm not going to pity you, Jerusalem, Judah. Indeed, I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king, and they shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. So when Rome attacked, guess what? God didn't protect them. He protected them from Alexander, but not from Rome. Why? Because they'd already rejected God. Why? They killed Jesus Christ. They said, we will not have this man rule over us. His blood be upon us and upon our children. So why? Let it be that way. So we begin to see as they reject, so then God says, listen, so I'm not going to deliver you. You rejected my shepherd. You rejected the one that I sent because you are his flock. And so he says in verse 7, I fed the flock, I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. And I dismissed the three shepherds, in one month my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. So I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and let what is perishing perish, and let those who are left eat each other's flesh. And then I took my staff, beauty, and cut it in two, that I might break the covenant which I had made with all the people. And so it was broken on that day. Thus, the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. If not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the pot or that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw it into the house of the Lord for the potter. And then I cut into my other staff bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now notice what happenings. God is saying, I want to feed the flock for slaughter, verse 4. Verse 7, I fed them and I have no pity on them, like he says there in verse 6. And when he makes a statement in verse 7, so I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock, I took my two staffs, one I called beauty and the other I called bonds. The word beauty can also be translated grace. The word bonds can also be translated unity. So he takes these two staffs, and I'm going to give them the other names, I'm going to give them grace and unity. It makes more sense as we continue the study. He says, I'm going to take this staff called beauty, grace, and in verse 10, he says, I took my staff, beauty or grace, and I cut it in two that I might break the covenant. My grace is gone. 
I, I, I said that I would watch over you. I said, but you rejected me. You did not want anything to do with me. So my grace is broken. You no longer have that. So the covenant that I made with all the people, so, verse 11, it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. So as Rome came in to conquer Jerusalem, those who were oppressed by the ruling class there in Israel, they recognized, wow, this is God's judgment. Those who had a heart to seek God knew this was God's judgment upon those of Israel. So he takes his two staffs in verse 7, one called beauty, the other called bonds, the unity. And then what happens is this. Verse 14 says, then I cut into my other staff bonds or unity that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now earlier, remember what he said back in chapter 10, verse 6 and 7, I'm going to take both Judah and, and I'm going to take Ephraim, and I'm going to join them together, and they're going to be amazing together. But now I'm going to divide them. There's going to be division because none of them are seeking me. And then uniquely, he says this in chapter 11, verse 8, I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Who are these three shepherds? We don't know. Commentators try to figure it out, and there are multiple, multiple, multiple guesses on who these three shepherds are. I honestly don't know. The, the, the ones that mean the, probably the closest that I can determine, and don't write this down as this is, thus saith the Lord. This is just Lowell in his study saying, thus saith the Lowell. But the, the shepherds that I would see would be this. I would see it as the priests, the prophets, and the elders, the leaders of the people. Those that were supposed to be the shepherds, those that were supposed to be guiding them, they forsook them. So I would say the shepherds called the leadership. If you don't want to call that, figure something else out. But he dismisses those shepherds, those who were supposed to guide and guard and protect the sheep. Those who were abusing them, not blessing them. And then he said, verse 9, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die. Let what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. So you are going to be destroyed. I'm not going to protect you. And then verse 10, I took my staff beauty. I cut it in two that I might break the covenant. He takes grace, destroys it, breaks it. No longer is, are you going to have grace. So it was broken on that day, verse 11. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. So no more am I going to protect you. The grace is gone. Rome is going to take over Israel. And then I said, verse 12, to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So he says, all right. I have poured out my life. I've given you my life. What are my wages? And then it says this. They weighed out for his wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw it into the house of the Lord. This is where it's absolutely incredible to see here that heart of God and what it is that God is being declaring here. Remember that passage in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16. 
Let me simply read it to you. It says that one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest. And when they said, what are you willing? And he said, what are you willing to give me that I might deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought the opportunity to betray him. And then in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 3, we begin to see the next part, because Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver and said, it's not lawful to put it into the treasury because it is a price of blood. So they pay Judas to betray Jesus so they could kill him. And now they're concerned about what is lawful. Isn't that amazing? They're, here they, they, they're, they're, they're trying to be so pious. It's not lawful for us to put in the treasury because it's the price of blood. And they consult together and brought, bought with them those 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field to bury the strangers in it. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom the children of Israel priced, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So we see this fulfillment of the prophecy here of Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. And after they reject Messiah, then he says this in verse 14. There's going to be division. Verse 14, I cut in to my other staff, bonds. I cut into the unity. There's going to be a division in Israel that I may break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. No longer are they going to be one of heart, but they're going to be divided. And the Lord said to me, verse 15, Next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those who are broken, nor feed those who are still that still stand, but he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. The sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye, and his arm shall be completely wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. So what are we seeing here? Well, God says, because you've rejected me, I'm going to give you a foolish shepherd. I'm going to give you one that's not me. So he makes a, step, a statement in verse 16, Indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who were cut off or seat the young or feed those that are still standing. There's a passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, one verse, jot it down. I want to read it to you. I want to read verse 43. He said this, I have come in my Father's name. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. You're not going to receive me, but I'm going to get, send, there's going to be another shepherd that's going to come in his own name, and he you will receive, and he is going to be the worthless shepherd. Now, with this worthless shepherd, verse 17, it says, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock, who wants nothing to do with God's children. 
The sword shall be against him. The sword shall be against his right arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. What does this mean? There's a passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 13. I want to read verses 12 through 14 to you. But it declares this. I want to, well, back at the verse 11. Revelation 13, 11 through 14. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like the lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence, and he causes those of the earth who, who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lives. It's interesting that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, and he begins to exalt himself. That the false prophet begins to have everyone come to worship the Antichrist. And as he has everyone comes to worship the Antichrist, there is going to be an assassination attempt. Someone is going to attempt to kill the Antichrist. And it makes a statement here that we do understand that he was wounded by the sword and he lived... In other words, it talked about the deadly wound that was healed. Zechariah gets a little bit more in depth in the information, and he makes this statement, verse 17 again, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. The sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. So we begin to see that there is this wound that comes. So as the sword slices... The eye is taken, the arm is taken. Now one, the eye is the vision. The, the right eye would be the one of strength. The arm, of course, is the arm of strength. But we begin to see this sword, whether it's that figurative sense, cuts out his, his sight and his strength. I believe it's in the spiritual sense, but also in the physical sense, his actual eye, his actual arm, and his arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Now, it's going to be to the point where he's almost dead, but then he comes alive. And so understand that what begins to happen is Zechariah says, listen, you have rejected the Messiah, God who has come. Now, because you've rejected him, your eyes are blinded. So as you reject him whom God has sent, what you're going to do is this. You rejected me, Jesus said, who came in the name of the Father. There's going to come another who's going to come in his own name. You're going to receive him. You're going to be blinded. And you are going to get everything that this false shepherd wants to give. And all he wants to do is consume you, eat you, and destroy you until you come back to me. So understand what God is saying is if you want me to guide you, I will guide you, I will bless you. But if you don't want, I'm going to give you over to someone else. 
And the sad thing is this, as Christians, have you ever noticed those people who are seeking everything but God and they're, they're trying to be satisfied, they're trying to get information, and they never truly have peace. They may have it for a moment, but then God shows the fallacy of that truth, the fallacy of that anchor, and they have nothing. And the only true satisfaction when you come into this word and you come to Jesus Christ. Let us be those who come to the people who are concerned of what's going on in this world, concerned in what's going on in their life and all these other things that they've sought after to try to find peace and joy and comfort and hope. To say, listen, all those things are false. All those things that you're, you're trying to eat and, and, and try to satisfy yourself, they're false. There's one thing only that satisfies, and that is God. And is coming to Jesus Christ and coming to him and receiving him fully as the shepherd of our souls. Let us be those who not reject who he is and, and what he says in our own lives, but let's accept it and receive it and share these truths. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for this word, for your heart, how good you are. We do ask, Lord, that you through your spirit would continue to meet and minister to us. You would grant us, Lord the grace that we would truly be able to see God's protection. That, Lord, you would tell us, just go out, don't board up the walls, deck out the place, open the door, celebrate, go out in purity and peace and, and linen, Lord, just, just in rest and not sweating, knowing that you're going to bless Father, help us to believe you. Help us to believe your word. Help us to know that, that truly we have to recognize that when you encamp around us, there's safety and security. But if we seek anything else besides you, it, it's false safety, false security, false hope, false peace, false joy. Draw us into you and your heart, and that alone we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.